Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, that was my wife actually puts those together. Yes, Sarah Jones. She sings. She does videos. And uh, many other things as well. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Scott, and I'm the lead pastor here. Um, please do uh, follow up with Sante and Amanda. They are great to talk to. They're wonderful people. They're Jersey, you know? Um, and that's why we love them. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, give them support, like send them with everything they need. Um, we support them as one of our external partners, but of course you can support them uh, individually. They, they were a little bit, you know, like um, less willing to say it, but I'll say that, like go support them um, individually. That'd be great. Uh, we are in a series that we are calling Grammar of Faith, which the idea of this is that, um, that we as Christians can sometimes use words that we don't define very well. Or there are these uh, kind of concepts about what we believe that we, we never really fully understand, though they pass by us constantly, whether, you know, on Sunday as we worship or, you know, in teaching like this and all those things. And what we want to do in this series is not only define these things, but then the reason why we call it a grammar of faith and not just like vocabulary of faith is uh, to show how these things are meant to work in our lives how these things are actually practically meant to flow out into how we approach the world. And so last week, we started with this whole uh, kind of concept. Hopefully, you remember of orthodoxy leads to orthopathy, leads to orthopraxy. You remember that? Show me your hand if that sounds not new. Good. Um, I won't ask you to define it, but basically the idea, you'll see this later um, today, is that right belief leads into right feelings, right desires, ultimately leads into right behavior, right actions, in the world, and we want to show how these various things we'll talk about in this series kind of flow through through that whole idea. How does understanding these things rightly change how we feel um, toward God, toward each other, toward ourselves, and then ultimately change uh, our actions in the world? So today we're going to start with a really easy, light topic, which is the idea of the Trinity. <laughs> um, <laughs> here we go. Um, a. W. Tozer, who was a great Christian author in the last century. Uh, was known for a lot of things, but, but one of the more famous things that he said was, there is nothing more important about you, whether you're a Christian or not, than what comes to mind when you think of God. There is nothing more important about you than what comes into your mind when you think about God. And so I sort of present that to you. When you think of God, what, what comes to mind? for decourse, I would actually take answers. But just think about that for a second. C.S. Lewis, another great, um, I would argue, probably the greatest Christian writer of the last century, was equally famous for uh, taking issue with what Tozer had said. And he said, surely it is not what comes into my mind when I think of God that is most important. It is what comes into God's mind when he thinks of me. <laughs> which I'm like, classic CS, so it's like, that's really good um, and really helpful. And we'll even, even think about that as we go through, uh, through the, the teaching today. I think both are right in their own way because both speak to the, the importance of how closely our conception of this ultimate thing that humans have tended to call God how closely that accords to actual reality. It's really important. It's really important. It, it, it really 
could be arguably the most important thing about us. So I wonder, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm in front of a room of, of, you know, probably majority of us are followers of Jesus, I would say. I know that everyone isn't. But knowing that, I wonder even for you what comes to mind, Christian, when you think of God. I wonder what your conception of that is. Like, what's the first, maybe, uh, you know, people talk about the attributes of God. What is God like? Or the functions of God? What does God do? Who is God? If you were to boil it all down and say what God is, maybe in distinction from anything else, God is what? And I know for me, honestly, prior to, to having someone put a, this fantastic book about the Trinity in my hands, I know for me, I probably would have gone all the way back. If I had to boil it down, I would say God is first and foremost, in my mind, the creator, in distinction to all of creation, that God is the creator. And I see some shaking heads. You probably agree with that. I want you to know I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to go after that, so don't nod your head too much, um, because that's what I always thought, again, until somebody put um, this wonderful book called Delighting in the Trinity, which if you're curious about the Trinity, it's, it's actually not that long. It's a wonderful, wonderful book by a guy named Michael Reeves. And in that book, he says, if we believe that, that when you boil it all down, that God at his essence is creator, then we immediately run into one major issue which is that, therefore, God is only God insofar as there is a creation. You following that? It makes God's sense, it makes his essential being dependent on the fact that he has created something. It actually makes us the reason why God even exists as such, right? It makes God dependent on us in a way. He needs creatures in order to be a creator. And so what, what, what Dr. Reeves does, which is really helpful, is he says, so we can ask the question, therefore, well, is there anything we can say about God prior to him being creator? And this is where the New Testament, particularly Jesus himself, has a really interesting answer to that. In fact, he, sa he says a bunch of stuff about this. But this is the one that I think says it most clearly. This is in the prayer that Jesus prays just before he's arrested and crucified. He says, he's praying to his father, and he says, Father, I desire that they also, by the way, he's praying for us. He's praying for those who will believe as a result of the testimony of the apostles. So he's talking about us 2,000 years prior to, to any of us being born. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now check this out that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing prior to creation? What Jesus is saying is God the Father was loving the Son. That actually, if you want to say, what if you boil it all down, who is God? God at essence is the Father, loving the Son. And as we then come to understand, as things sort of play out, with the Spirit as well, by the Spirit, through the Spirit. And we'll talk about all of that.
You see, what the scriptures say is that God is one God in three different persons who are in this perfect, loving relationship with one another. So perfect and self-giving and self-sacrificing one with another that the only way to express the essence, the essential nature of God is to say that God is one. And yet, as we have revealed over the course of the story of scriptures, is that at the heart of that is a father loving a son by this thing called the Holy Spirit. So God is father, God is son, and God is the spirit. Okay, are you tracking with that? Okay, I, okay. you're more confident than I am. That's, a, that's like really wild right? Like, that's a lot to take in. Let me, let me give you, this is what we did. Uh, again, I'm, I'm borrowing quite a bit from the discipleship course we did, Intellectual 202, that, that some of you are in. But here's, here's four rock-solid theological statements that arise directly from the scriptures that we're going to base a lot of what we say today on. Ready? Number one, you should write these down. There is one and only one true and living God. We as Christians, we are monotheists. Mono, right? One, alone. There is only one true and living God. Two, (laughs) this one God eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One and only one existing eternally in three persons. These three persons, number three, are completely equal in attributes, each having the the same divine nature. What we're saying is it's not the Father's one type of person, the Son's one type of person, and then the Spirit is another type of person, right? Like sometimes we picture like God is the grandpa, God the Father is the grandpa on the hill, Jesus is the, is the wonderful sweetheart um, who came to earth. And then the spirit is like the wild cousin of the Trinity, right? Like just going crazy, doing weird stuff. Um, no, 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 no. They all have the same exact attributes and they're of the same nature. That's the only way that they could be one in three persons. Number four, while each person is truly and completely God, the persons are not identical. Okay. those are rock solid theological statements number one okay a lot of people's objection to christianity like their objection to all religion is it's made up and somebody came up with it and it worked because there was political advantage to it or whatever guys can i just say like especially this week as i'm as i'm neck deep in this all week who would make this up (laughs) Like, seriously, like, like, if you were trying to explain the way the world works, I don't know about you, but I'm like one God, just like one creator God, I'm like, okay, I can kind of like get down with it. There's probably a time before I was a Christian that I was like, yeah, I have a vague sense that there's something bigger, right? Even polytheism, the idea that there's, that there's spiritual energies behind the kinds of things that we experience as significant in this world, whether that's, you know, family or money or the sun or, or things in nature or whatever. I'm like, okay, there's an instinct there. I don't know why you would try and roll this out and be like, we good? Like, like we all get it? And that's just number one, is I don't think that you would, that you would come up with this if you were just trying to put together something for 
whatever expedience, right? Like for your own power. This is wild. And we as Christians, very few of us, and this is not throwing shade at all, very few of us could come up with these four statements, right? The Trinity is a very complex, these are four very complex statements. And if you're intimidated by them, that's totally fine. But this is the truth of who God is. What I'm, what I'm going to try and do is show you how unbelievably practical these things are. First, though, let's play a game. Let's play hunt the heresy. This is fun. Okay? Um, so I want you to remember these four things, okay? And then we're going to talk through some ways this has been misstated in, in church history um, that haven't been helpful. Okay, so the first is modalism. Modalism is the idea that God is like water. And sometimes water is a liquid, sometimes water is a solid, right, as ice, and sometimes water is a gas. Good, right? So three different ways, three different modes that one thing, H2O, can take. Can anybody tell me, looking at your four statements, why this was declared a heresy? This is an inaccurate view of who the Christian God is. Look at your four statements, if you wrote them down. Good, read it, read it. What does it say? Who's bold enough? Go ahead, Ty. Good. I would add four, right? While each person is truly and completely God, the persons are not identical. They are, they are not the same exact thing, right? So modalism, good. So heresy, okay, adoptionism. This one says, by the way, we're doing this not just because it's fun or because I got to use weird clip art, but... Um, because it's helpful to see how, how the subtleties of this can go wrong. Okay, adoptionism is the idea that Jesus came, he lived his life, he lived such a good and beautiful and perfect life that God eventually declared him, yes, you are my son in a unique way in comparison to the rest of, of humanity. That he adopted Jesus into the Godhead and said, yes, you belong because of how wonderfully you are living out the mandate for humanity. What's wrong with this one? By the way, that's a trophy. That's like, Jesus, you did it, and you get the trophy of being God. Okay, that's why I put the trophy there. Uh, what do we got? Number two, somebody read it. Good, right? Eternally exists in three persons. This is really important. What was God? This is where we go back to. If God is merely creator, then he's dependent on that which he created. If, however, God pre-exists creation in this relationship, then Father, Son, and Spirit have to exist eternally before the foundation of the world, right? Whatever that means. Good. Partialism. Partialism. Maybe you've heard this analogy, an egg. An egg has a shell, an egg has whatever the white part is called, and an egg has a yolk. So those three things together, all egg white. Thank you, Drayden. Um, <laughs> that's what God is like. God is a little bit father, a little bit son, a little bit spirit. What might be wrong with this analogy? We have a number four up here. While each person is truly and completely God, the persons are not identical. Good. Each person, it's the first half of that, right? Each person is truly and complete. You do not have an egg if all you have is an eggshell, okay? You have all of God in the person of the Son, which 
Now your brain is like, wait, what? Right? But that's like a big deal. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Putting that back up. Okay, next one. This one's the best one. This is the biggest controversy about all this in church history. This is uh, a, a dude named Arius, um, who was a bishop in North Africa, who it's kind of adoptionism of its own sort, where he basically says that Jesus was a created being, just like everybody else. Again, God primarily as creator, not as father, um, that he created Jesus. This caused all kinds of a stir. This is what led to the Council of Nicaea that Constantinople, um, or Constantine, uh, called together, where we get the, the Nicene Creed that some of you growing up had to memorize. That's where that whole thing comes from. And actually, contrary to what anyone would have expected, Arius lost that debate. Arius came to that with m way more bishops um, on his side and ultimately it was argued down. Thank you, people like Athanasius and others. Um, this picture, which is just too good not to tell you the story, this is, this is Arius, okay? And <laughs> this is St. Nicholas, which I like to think is the St. Nick that Santa Claus is based off of because of this story. It's not but it'd be fun if it was, um, is Arius is going on and on giving his side of the story at the Council of Nicaea about Jesus was created and Jesus shouldn't be worshipped and Jesus is not really truly God in the way that, that the creator is God. And this guy, Nicholas, who's a bishop, like that's why he's dressed up like a bishop, like he's a big deal, gets up and smacks him in the face, <laughs> like gets up and smacks Arius in the face because he just can't take it anymore. So this is a fairly famous illustration. This, I show you that one because it's funny. Two, because this, these are big deal debates in church. They're like really consequential debates. Ultimately, if you're worried about St. Nick, he was thrown in jail, and eventually people kind of felt bad for him, and he got out of jail, and he was fine. And he was made a bishop again, um, probably because Arius lost. Uh, so there you go. So just to show you some of the ways that this can go wonky. One God, three persons, we have to hold those things together. I think the best way to begin to wrap our minds around how, how might this even begin to inform our lives is to watch the Trinity in action. And that's, that's what uh, I had Rachel read us this morning. Check out these two texts. These, these are the two passages that she read for us. One is the very opening scene of the creation narrative. Again, right, God creating. And so we might... I'll just tell you right now, right? Like what we expect is God to be alone. If God is essentially creator, then it should just be God and then creation comes into. Um, and then this one is the baptism of Jesus. This really significant moment in Jesus's ministry where before he's launched into his public ministry, he's baptized. Many of you are, are familiar with the practice of baptism, whether you've been here or in other churches. Jesus himself goes through his own baptism. Let me just read these. Okay, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word hovering there um, is, is very much a word for flutter. It's fluttering over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Jesus' is baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All right, remember the magazine highlights? You got to look at what's the same, what's different, and all those. That's what we're going to do with this. 
three or four things, there's a lot more than that, but there's three or four things that I think you're, as you sit here, whether you're familiar with these stories or not, are perfectly capable of picking up that, that are similar between these two scenes. Anybody bold enough to give me one of them? Good, the spear. Who said it? The spear. What about the spear, Bishop? Yeah, good. The Spirit of God, right, is present at both. And there's a sense in which at creation, the Spirit of God is hovering, is fluttering, right? Now the Spirit of God is descending like a dove, right? That You have both of these sort of personifications or, or whatever the right word is, these sort of embodiments of the Spirit as this sort of hovering being. Good. Give me something else. What's that? Yeah, the voice of God, right? God speaks. It's very important that in both, that God speaks. And you get the sense it's God the Father speaking, right? Spirit is fluttering. Jesus is there, but God is speaking. Good. Give me one more. Good, yeah, water's involved, right? There's, there's a sense that both of these are happening in this space where water. There's a lot that I could say about that, but that's another sermon for another time, but. Yeah, good. There's, there's, there's a kind of dynamic interaction going on here. Good, excellent. Hold that thought. That's a really good one. Maybe one more. Good. Yep, both are good, right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's a well-pleasedness with creation that God has. Excellent. Thank you, AJ. See the separating? It's interesting that the heavens are open to Jesus, and then there's also this mention in Genesis 1 that God separates. These two passages are pretty unmistakably meant to be linked. Okay, who, who feels left out of Genesis 1 from what we've talked about so far? Yeah, right? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus at creation? The whole Trinity, right? This is a very significant moment. Obviously, right, this is the beginning of everything. Where's Jesus? Anybody have any idea where Jesus is? In the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word, the word, okay. Some of you are like, what are all these people saying? <laughs> It's okay, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. We said that last week, right? They're quoting John chapter 1. John is one of the Gospels, these, these biographies of Jesus. And, and all the biographies of Jesus open in different ways. You're probably, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're probably more familiar with the ways that uh, Matthew, Mark, or Matthew Luke uh, start, which is with the birth of Jesus. But John, who is Jesus' best friend, actually starts his Gospel with a really interesting statement about what Jesus was doing at creation. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you hear that? It's, it's, him, it's his own sort of take on the Trinity. Somehow the Word, Jesus, is God, and he's with God. And, and you can see him almost trying to stay within those four, within those four theological statements by saying Jesus was God, but he was also with God at the beginning. And he was with God at the beginning as the Word. You catch what he's saying there? He's saying the word that God speaks is, is the Son. <laughs> Wild, right? right? How does God create? 
right? If I were to, if I were to ask you that, right, and, and I know we're going deep, but this is what I promise you, grammar faith, here we go, right? Genesis 1, how does God create? God creates by speaking, right? So why would John call Jesus that very word? Other writers of the New Testament will go on to say that when God created the world, he created it through the Son. He created it through Jesus. Jesus is the one actually acting in in creation to form it. Colossians says this. Hebrews says this. A lot of New Testament witness that Jesus is their creation, and he's there as the one who is actually accomplishing what God speaks. He goes and he does it. Now, wild. So we see. So we see the Trinity. At creation, God the Father is speaking. Jesus is the one acting. And then the Spirit, whoo, what's that crazy Spirit doing, right? The Spirit is floating and hovering. And then what we learn later in the story, some of you, if, you were, uh, if you're in the, uh, the 201 D course on Wednesday, you even saw this, that, that in Genesis 2, we get this, this scope down, um, what am I trying to say, zoomed in picture of God's creation, specifically of humanity. And what it says is that he forms humanity from the dust of the earth, and then he breathes his spirit into what he's created, and that thing becomes a living being, becomes a soul. That the spirit, if you will, is the giver of, of, of the actual life that is in God. He's what makes things come alive. That's the spirit's role. So God, God, um, the Father is speaking and Jesus is accomplishing and it's the Spirit who actually applies that and gives life to all the things that Jesus is creating. And now you have at the baptism, you have the, the Son who is sent by the Father to do the Father's will. The beloved Son, the Son in whom He is well pleased. And when he's baptized, God speaks that over him. Yes, this is my appointed one. And the spirit comes and descends on Jesus. Why? Because there's a, there's a commissioning, there's a sending to give life that God is doing in and through Jesus. And so the spirit is active with Jesus. And so we are told time after time after time that how does Jesus do his miracles? It's by the spirit. How is Jesus raised even? It's by the spirit. How is Jesus present to us today? It's by the Spirit. The Spirit gives life because of the things that Jesus accomplishes. Think of it this way. Here's a simple way to put it together. God the Father authors. God the Son accomplishes. God the Spirit applies. God the Father authors. So we have probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. For who so loved the world? For God so loved the world. Let's be more specific. Which person of the Trinity? For God the Father so loved the world that he sent the who? That he sent the Son, right? So God authors. God is the initiator of these things. But who, who saved us? Who did the work of salvation by coming and living a life and dying for us, right? Jesus accomplished the work of salvation. But who applies that work? Who comes and makes resonance and, and actually makes us, Paul, in this beautiful language, he says, it is only by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, and, and it's that Spirit that speaks to our spirit that we are really children of God. You see, it's applying what Jesus accomplished, what the Father authored. Isn't it beautiful? 
So in some ways, the answer to who saved you, I think we tend to think Jesus saves. But the appropriate answer is God saves. God the Father saves. God the Son saves. God the Spirit saves. You see, they're all one. They're all one in attribute. They're all one in action. And yet there are different different functions, different activities that they perform. And it seems like this is the best way to understand it because this is from creation. God authors creation. God the Father is the one who speaks. The Word goes forth and accomplishes what the Father has spoken. And it's the Spirit that then applies that unique life to actually make it something living. And so it is in our story. God the Father desperately pursues wayward children like you and me. And he sends his son to accomplish the work of salvation, which he did in a finished act 2,000 years ago. And the offer of salvation is that you would accept that gift that Jesus already gave 2,000 years ago, that God the Father initiated because he wanted you back home And then when you bow the knee and you say, yes, I need the finished work of Jesus because me doing life on my own is not sufficient. The work of salvation is not done because then the gift of salvation comes, which is the spirit who then applies all of that amazingness to speak within us that you are truly forgiven, to begin to activate that forgiveness in our life, to bring the cleansing and purification that are only available in the cross and begins to actually actualize that, like give that life. Take us from from little pieces of of dust on the ground and to breathe the Spirit into that and to actually make it a living thing again. Which of those is most significant? The answer is yes. (laughs) They're all significant that there is a God who so desperately wants to be your father that he would send his son. And there is a son who is so desperately in line with his father's heart that he says, Father, I'll do whatever it takes to bring them home. And then there is a spirit who says, yes, I can make dry bones live. So send me to apply what the son has done in obedience to the father. And I can bring life into the individual believer's actual experience of me. So what? (laughs) Hopefully you already have a sense of this. This is what we put up last week. We said orthodoxy, right? Belief leads to orthopathy, right desires, leads to orthopraxy. Let me see if I can apply this in each of these. First one, orthodoxy, right belief. I think the biblical answer, the primary biblical answer to what should come to mind when we think of God is Jesus, the Son, sent by the Father, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is God. We see this again and again in the New Testament where Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, it's been so good knowing you. It's been a blast. You've done wild stuff. But yo, can you pull back the veil and show us the Father? Like show us actually who God is. You know what Jesus says again and again? Guys, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am not, right, not partialism. I am not part of God. I'm not the egg white, okay? I am not a mode of God. I am not the ice version of H2O. I am fully God. And there is no better translation 
of who God is for us as human beings than to see that taking on human form and nature. And so Jesus says, I'm all of it. I am perfectly loved by the Father. I am perfectly obedient to the Father's will. I am fully and totally indwelt by the Spirit. You see me, you're seeing it, man. And so I think for us as Christians, when we think of God, I think we think of the one who walked among us. That's our image of God. Not some, not some far-flung energy out there, not some amorphous, right, like energy buzzing somewhere. No, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen it completely. I think where this gets significant is I think sometimes we emphasize, guys, Jesus is God, and the divinity of Jesus is really important. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I think things begin to change in our conception, in our belief, in a way that actually impacts things when we think of it as God is Jesus. There's not a big, scary grandpa up on the hill who sent his sweetheart grandson out so that he wouldn't be as mad at us once the grandson did what the grandson did. And then the wild cousin comes, and we're a little scared of him because he might make us weird, right? No, 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 no. The act of salvation, the act of the pursuit of your soul is the pursuit of a triune God in three persons, a father who desperately loves you, right? And I get it. I get that seeing God as father is really complicated for some of us. But take that complication, take that, I've had a horrible experience with, with my father, or with a father figure or whatever it is, and say every, every brokenness that's part of that, every part of your disappointment is precisely because you were made for a perfect father. And he is everything that earthly fathers so often struggle to be. Let's not take our view an experience of authority and put that on God, let's take the brokenness of that and realize that every answer to the thirst and hunger that that creates is found in God. I know that that's hard, but he's a good father. He's not angry. That's not his fundamental posture. God didn't so hate the world that he had to send the son. For God so loved the world that he sent the son. And the Spirit, right? And we'll talk more about the Spirit in a couple weeks because I, I think he needs his own week. But the Spirit, the biggest thing that I'm going to say about the Spirit, I'll tell you right now, is I think sometimes we think the Spirit either makes us superhumans, like the Infinity Stone or something, and like we get the Spirit and it's like, no, I may do, whatever, right? Or it makes us less than human. It makes us weird and makes us do weird stuff, quite frankly. The Spirit's role is to give life, which means the Spirit's role is to make us actually human. Not superhuman, not subhuman, it's to make us actually human. That that's the work of the Spirit. He's the one who applies the work of Jesus in our life and actually brings us back to life. So to be scared of the Spirit is to be scared of the full work that God wants to do in saving you. And we've got to get ourselves away from that. Because the Spirit is not some other thing, right? The Spirit, even Jesus himself says, the Spirit's primary role is to make manifest my presence in your life. The Spirit actually looks away from himself and says, I'm just trying to bring Jesus to you. I'm not a whole other thing running, my, running this other game. No, no, I'm one and the same as Jesus, and so I want to manifest Jesus to you. You get more of me, you get more of Jesus, right? When we see that Jesus is God, 
praise God. But when we see that God is Jesus, that God is the Spirit, that begins to change some things in our minds. Orthopathy. One of the things that it changes is it does fundamentally change our understanding of salvation. Because if God is primarily creator, if he's primarily like king and creator, and he sets up the rules, then salvation becomes about how well do you, do you fit the rules? And if you don't fit the rules, whew, thank goodness Jesus came to, to do the rules for you. And so now God looks at you as if you did the rules. Okay? There's a little bit of truth in that, in the way that salvation is. But it's not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is that there is a loving heavenly father that wants to bring you home, that wants to bring you into that perfect relationship that is at the heart of reality. J.I. Packer, great, truly great theologian of the last century, said justification, the idea that our sins are put on Jesus, is, is, is maybe the, um, the primary aspect of what happens in salvation, but the primary gift of salvation is adoption. Adoption is where it's at. You're brought back into the family of God. Here's, here's an analogy that I've heard before. If, if you're speeding and a traffic cop pulls you over, and if that traffic cop either winks at you and says, it's fine, whatever, go on your way, or if that traffic cop says, you know what, there's a, there's a ticket that I have to give you, but I'll pay the ticket. You don't have to worry about it. It's a whole hassle. I'll, I'll give the $150 or whatever, right? And then you drive off, right? Authority has let you off the hook. You might have profound gratitude toward that authority. Whew, I got off the hook. But you will not love them. That doesn't create a love relationship. That creates a relationship of gratitude and maybe a, a little bit of relief. And I think some of us experience our salvation as primarily a relief. Oh, I'm off the hook. And then gratitude. Oh, the one that could have crushed me didn't. Oh, I'm so happy. You are interacting primarily with the salvation offered by your creator. But if the salvation offered is by a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and actually does everything he does to bring you into the joy of that creation. Because here's the essential thing. If that is true, that Father, Son, and Spirit existed before creation, they didn't need us in order to be who they were, which means for whatever reason, they chose that. They chose creation. They weren't dependent on it. They chose it. Why did they choose it? We have verses like, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know what the only reasonable explanation of what that joy was is? It's you and me. What other joy is set before him? He's going back to what he already enjoyed. He's going back to the Father and the Spirit. They're going to do what they did. What's the joy that's different, that sets before him, that makes everything he did worth it? It's you. The Father delights in you as he delights in the Son. Jesus delights in you as he delights in the Father. The Spirit brings you into that rhythm, wants you to enjoy that fellowship. C.S. Lewis once said, the idea, actually in, the, in that very same thing, uh, where he says, like, no, what actually matters most is what comes to God's mind when he thinks of you. He says, to imagine that we are not merely pitied by God, but delighted over, 
as though our very being can contribute to the divine happiness is, this is where his most famous essay gets its name, is a weight of glory almost impossible to bear. The idea that God doesn't pity us, but that we can be an ingredient in the divine happiness, that the joy set before him, yo, can be me, can be you, no offense, is wild. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's a father, right? The prodigal son is a far better image of of the gospel than getting pulled over and being let off the hook. It is a father yearning for us to come home, running down the street saying, finally, you're back. Finally, you've done it. Finally, you've chosen to come home. How does this change how we act in the world? One thing, I I mean, one thing that I would say is just, do you see how much more of an invitation of prayer that is, right? To actually enjoy fellowship with that Trinity, right? If, if, if pulsing at the heart of ultimate reality is a perfect self-giving relationship, why wouldn't we want to go there and enjoy that and have experiences of that and actually be known in the presence of God as one who has tasted some of what that Father's love feels like, right? This should drive us to what Christians call communion with God, actually relating to him. It also, by the way, this is a bit of a side note, it also makes sense of why relationships are what matter most by far in every human life. Right, there's these cliches like somebody gets to the end of their life and no one is like, oh, I wish that I just hit my goal more quarters or whatever, right? Or, oh, I just, I just wish I had, you know, decrease my half marathon time a little bit more, whatever, right? Like, I'm not throwing shade at anything, but people don't get to the end of their lives and primarily think about things and accomplishments disconnected from people. They think about people. You know why? Because we are made in the image of the God who at his essence is a perfect self-giving relationship. That's why your greatest joy will be found in self-giving relationship, right? And, and your greatest joy and, and where you'll be filled and experience that primarily because it's in its purest form is actually in communion with God. The Trinity drives us to a right belief about who God is. It changes our desires as we fall more in love with a father, not just a distant creator, but a father and a son and a spirit who are invested in bringing us home. It changes how we behave because we should want to pursue that kind of amazing, mysterious, mind-blowing God. And it drives us to each other amazingly. It explains why the whole ethic of Christianity is an ethic of one anothering. We're just imaging the one who has one another since the foundation, since before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father God, um, sometimes.